thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Good morning, everyone. If you're not sure who I am, I'm one of the pastors here. My privilege to do so. My name is Ed Nall. Um, We're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel this morning. Our sermon text is Mark 7, verses 24 through 37, and I'm titling the sermon, Yes, Lord, I Believe You Can. N.T. Wright, a well-known British theologian, says, If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as the central character. Go on looking until you're not just a spectator. That's what I'm hoping that we're going to do together this morning. We're going to be looking at two miracles performed by Jesus, the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter and the healing of a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. These accounts are presented as evidence as to who the central character in the Bible is, that is, who is Jesus Christ, which is the main question being answered in these first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. So if you're not sure who Jesus is, listen up, we'll discover it together. And you might say, I know who Jesus is, why do I need to hear about this? We all need to hear about it, because none of us know Jesus as fully as we ought, because we are sinners. And as the old hymn says, we are prone to wander, Lord. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. All of us are prone to wander, and that's one of the reasons that we gather each week to encourage each other and to learn more about Jesus Christ. So before we get to these two miracles, I want to place them in their larger context. The Bible is full of stories that, when taken together, are a unity, are one grand story, the story of God redeeming a people for himself, people who are lost and have no hope, and then giving them hope in Jesus Christ. It's the story of God taking the spiritually blind and giving them sight, giving the spiritually deaf the ability to hear the word of God. But it's helpful when you're reading anything to know where you are in the story. So let's go back to Genesis for just a couple of minutes and look at Genesis 15, 1 through 6, where God is making his covenant with Abram. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is a stunning picture of what God is going to do through Abram, who he will call Abraham. God says, look up at the stars. And back then, there wasn't any ground light to block out the stars. You could see them all really clearly. Can you number them, Abraham? I can just see him trying to count the stars and getting lost and having to start over again. Why should I count all these stars, Lord? Because that's how many descendants I will give you. Even though you are very old and you have no son of your own, I will provide you with a son. And God does so in a way that is miraculous, so that Abraham and we will know that it is God who has done it. This morning, we will see Jesus continue to fulfill God's promise to Abraham here in Mark's gospel. How? Jesus does it by taking his own life-giving, miracle-working ministry outside of Israel's borders to the Gentiles. Yes, Jesus came first to the Jews, as God had said, but then he went to the Gentiles. The Gospel of Mark is laid out in, in large measure like this. Chapters 1 through 8.26 answer this question, who is Jesus? And that's where we are in the story right now, here in chapter 7. And then chapters 8, verse 30 through 1547 answer a second closely related question. What did Jesus come to do? And then there's a pivot point in the middle. When Jesus is asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they tell him. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. That's the, that's the pivot point in the middle of our gospel. If Jesus is Messiah, and he is, that changes everything for everyone for all time. So now, let's read about this first miracle in Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. I'm reading out of the ESV. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray for the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your one and only son into the world to heal a Gentile woman's daughter to heal a man who could not hear and could not speak, to heal us, to take us out of our sin and the sickness that we are in and to heal us and bring us everlasting life through his perfect sinless sacrifice. Thank you that you raised him from the dead. Thank you that he rules even now 
and one day will come again for his church. Help us, Lord, to hear the word this morning, to believe it, to be changed by it, and to put it into practice. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has just been through an intense time of teaching, preaching, healing, in the face of his own people's rejection. So he withdraws to a Gentile region that's about 30 miles away. Gentile simply means not Jewish. And as far as we can tell, this is the only time he ventured outside the borders of Israel, though we're not sure of the duration of his stay. But Jesus is not just in Gentile territory. He's in the territory of a people group who have been enemies of Israel for centuries. He doesn't want anyone to know where he is, but his fame is now spread so he can't hide. Not just in Israel, but in the Gentile world as well. But he didn't come here merely to rest. He has a divine appointment with a woman whose daughter is in crisis. It's no accident that our passage today follows the passage that Doug preached last week on defilement. Scripture is laid out in a certain way for our benefit. Jesus is now traveling outside of Israel to a place that the Israelites believe is defiled. It's unclean. To meet a woman who is defiled and unclean in their way of thinking. He's training his disciples. He's showing them that salvation is for all the nations and even the nations that the disciples thought were outside of God's blessing. So this Syrophoenician woman from an area that we now call Lebanon comes to see him with an urgent request. Her little girl is possessed by a demon. Could there be anything worse? And the first thing I want you to notice is this. Look at how she approaches Jesus. Verse 25 says, she came and fell down at his feet. And the Greek word for fell down here is proskuneo, which we normally translate as worship. This woman kneels down. She assumes a posture of worship, and then she makes her request. And the tense of the verb indicates that she begs repeatedly. She persists with her request. This woman has at least four things working against her in making this request. But Jesus has good news for her on each one of these four counts. Obstacle one, she's female. And her society is against her. Women are not highly valued in that day and were often brutalized by men. But Jesus treats women differently than any man of his day. He treats them with dignity, tenderness, love, he knows that they can learn just as men do, and that was not commonly thought. Second obstacle, it's in the text. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Her nationality is against her. Why would a Jewish rabbi do anything for her? Why would a Jewish rabbi even touch her? Her people and the Jews have been enemies for centuries. But even though Jesus is going first to the Jews, now he's come out into Tyre and Sidon to speak to the Gentiles, to bring them the good news. This is his first foray, showing that the gospel will be for all people and all nations, just as we read in Psalm 67 a few minutes ago. Third obstacle, Satan is against her. One of Satan's demons, one of his fallen angels, is possessing 
her daughter. This may have something to do with the fact that she comes from a nation where they worship false gods. But she has now abandoned her false gods, and she has come in faith to the true God. And since God is now for her, who can be against her? Obstacle four. This is from the parallel account in the book of Matthew. The disciples are against her. They tell Jesus, would you send her away? She's bothering us. They're acting in the flesh. Jesus, though, as always, is acting in the spirit. And he will teach the disciples to love Jews and Gentiles in the coming months. And he will ignore the disciples' request. And he will listen to this Gentile woman. He will interact with her. So Jesus answers all of these obstacles. She makes a request. But Jesus, in the parallel passage in Matthew, doesn't respond, says he utters not a word. But the woman still persists. Why isn't Jesus responding? I mean, he always responds perfectly. He's the Son of God. So most likely, by delaying his response, he's allowing the genuineness and the persistence and the strength of this woman's face to shine through to the disciples, almost to put them to shame. But even when Jesus finally answers, it's not the way that I would expect. He says in Matthew's account, remember, she's a Gentile. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she still persists. She's not from Israel. She calls him Lord. And then she calls him by his messianic title, Son of David. And then Jesus responds a second time. But still, it's not the way we expect. He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, most people at this point would not respond like this woman does. She doesn't say, how dare you look down on me? She doesn't say, my people are just as good as your people. Don't speak to me that way. (laughs) Here's what she says. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. She agrees. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She agrees with Jesus, and then she uses Jesus' own words to persist with her request. And by the way, this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark anyone calls him Lord. When I was a young man, this story shocked me. Is Jesus calling this woman and her people dogs? Yes, but not in the way you think. There are two words in Scripture for dogs. Chiron, referring to a feral, dangerous, wild dogs. And canarion, which is a diminutive form of the word, referring, referring to a small dog who would be domesticated, kind of puppy, who would wait at the table for some crumbs to fall. Or maybe for one of the children to surreptitiously Slip them some food under the table. This woman is content with these crumbs because even what is left over after the Jews hear the good news is sufficient to deliver her daughter from demon possession. This woman seems at this point to be a much better theologian than the disciples are. (laughs) Yeah, Bill. (laughs) Jesus marvels at this woman's faith. Only two times in Scripture does he marvel at someone's faith. It's this account with this woman and the Roman centurion, and they're both Gentiles. 
He calls her faith great. She seems to understand somehow that God is going to take his message first to the Jews, but then it's going to go to the Gentiles as well. Perhaps she had heard Psalm 67. And that's part of our larger context. Let me read it to you again and listen. Listen to where the gospel is going to go. This is in the Psalms. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The good news will go to the whole world. Ever since God called Abraham and made a covenant with him, God's plan was to bless all the nations of the earth through him and his descendants. So Christ's encounter with this Canaanite woman was the first foray, the preview, the down payment on God's plan to bless all the nations of the earth and to give Abraham countless descendants. The gospel of Christ will not be bound or constrained by ethnicity, geography, or gender. Jesus is breaking down the walls that separated the Gentiles and the Jews. Now Israel, the nation, was supposed to be a witness to the Gentiles, but they had largely failed in that endeavor. The best best example of that is probably the reluctant prophet Jonah, who God tells to go and preach repentance to the Ninevites. He doesn't want the Ninevites to repent, He'd rather they suffer and die. So he flees in the opposite direction. So when Jesus comes, a better Jonah, he comes to the Jews first, but then he travels to Tyre and Sidon to heal a Gentile woman's daughter. I wonder if the Apostle Paul may have had her in mind when he wrote these words in Ephesians 2, 11 through 17. I love this passage. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Listen to this. Having no hope and without God in the world. And then these two words, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. The good news of God is coming to Jew and Gentile alike. So what is the result of this woman's persistent faith? What Jesus called her great faith in face of obstacles that she was up against. Jesus says to her, this is from Matthew, O woman, great is your faith, 
be it done for you as you desire. Some of you in this room are, some of you in this room are mothers. Can you imagine? Your child is possessed by a demon, and the Lord Jesus says to you, be it done for you as you desire. Could there be any sweeter words? Her daughter was healed instantly. She went back home. The daughter's lying on the bed. The demon is gone. That's the power of Jesus. So this woman has a lot going against her, but it really doesn't matter because Jesus sees her faith. And when he does, he responds with a demonstration of his power and love. She's no longer a dog. She's a child of God. She's no longer under the table. She now has a seat at the table as a member of God's family. So in the gospel story, which is all of Scripture, we're in Mark 1 through 8 where people are asking who Jesus is, and Jesus is demonstrating who he is by the authority of his teaching at which everyone marveled. Even his opponents marveled at his teaching. Where does he get these things? He's also demonstrating that he's God by fulfilling what the prophets had foretold. And Jesus continues to make this down payment on God's covenant promise to Abraham to give him many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. But we don't want to miss the main point of the passage. Jesus is the Messiah. That's the main point. Jesus is showing everyone who's watching, everyone who's reading this passage, that he is God, that he's Messiah that he is the one and only son of the one and only God, and he has come as the savior of the world, first to the Jews and then to the whole world. That's the main point of the passage. But there's also an application that we can draw from this account. The primary obstacle everyone on earth faces is this. We are sinners, separated from a holy and righteous God by our sin. But if we, like this Syrophoenician woman, will humble ourselves and put our faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, we will find life, abundant, everlasting life. And now we come to the second miracle in our passage, the healing of a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. So we'll pick it up in verse 31. I think we'll have it on the screens. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. He sighed and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now Jesus is still in Gentile territory in the region of the Decapolis, which is a group of ten largely Greek cities, but there are some Jews who lived there. And some people, they're not named in Scripture, bring a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment to Jesus. And these friends beg Jesus to lay his hand on this man, that is to heal him. Jesus takes him aside. He gets with the man privately. 
The text doesn't tell us why, but we can imagine the abuse that this man has taken over the course of his life. In those days, people believed that the deaf were mentally deficient. And it was commonly thought that this man's afflictions were brought on by sin, either his sin or his parents' sin. And so he was very likely shunned. He's an outsider. Jesus likes outsiders. So Jesus is being sensitive to the man's situation and the mocking and scorn he has endured, and he removes him from the situation. Jesus has compassion for this man who cannot hear what his friends are asking for and who cannot speak clearly enough to ask for himself. So Jesus takes him aside. He puts his fingers in his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him in Aramaic, his language, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released And he spoke plainly. More literally, the scripture says, the shackle of his tongue was released. Jesus uses a language this man can understand. He can't hear and he couldn't speak, but he could feel Jesus' touch. Jesus is using a kind of sign language with him. The sign language of touch. He puts his fingers in his ears and touches his tongue to signal to him what he's going to do. Then he looks up to heaven, undoubtedly in prayer, just as he did before feeding the 5,000. Jesus wants this man, and Mark wants us to know, that only God is able to do this. Jesus then sighs deeply. Another translation says, he moaned. Now, undoubtedly, he has compassion for this man. But moaning is usually an expression of pain. But why pain? Jesus knows that he's going to heal this man. This man is going to be joyful. He's going to hear and speak. Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, puts it like this. There is a cost. There is a cost for healing this man. Mark deliberately signals this with the word that he uses for deaf and had a speech impediment. He uses a single Greek word, moglilalos. This word is used only one other time in Scripture in in the fifth verse of Isaiah chapter 35. It's a very rare word. And Mark would not have used it unless he wanted us to think of Isaiah 35.5, in which Isaiah says about the Messiah, Verse 1, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And in verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Moglalalos. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Verse 1 tells us that he will come with vengeance. Messiah will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. But at this point, Jesus is not handing out vengeance on the oppressors, is he? That's not what he's doing in this passage. He is showing compassion to this man. But there's something larger at play here. Jesus is relentlessly on his way to the cross. 
not to hand out divine retribution, but to absorb it. Christ absorbs the divine retribution. The penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. I think that's why Jesus moans in pain. He knows what it's going to cost him. It'll cost him his earthly life, the shedding of his own blood, in order to bring sight to the blind, to bring hearing to the deaf, and streams of living water into the desert of our lives. Mark is letting us know that Messiah, about whom Isaiah prophesied in chapter 35, is here. And this miracle is confirmation that the one Isaiah said would make the blind see and the dumb speak has come. He's here right now. This key part of God's redemption story is happening now, and not just for this blind, mute man, but for the spiritual blindness and the deafness of all those in the world who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. Many of you will remember Luke chapter 7. John the Baptist, who at this point is in prison, sends his emissaries out to inquire if Jesus is indeed the Messiah. You would think if anybody knew that Jesus was the Messiah, it would be John the Baptist, since the heavens opened and God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. John was there. But Jesus didn't do everything that John had expected he would do. He had some different expectations. So he sends his emissaries. And here's what we read in Luke 7. John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Remember earlier when I said the first eight chapters of Mark are answer the question, who is Jesus? Well, here's part of the answer. Jesus is the one about whom Isaiah prophesied long ago. The blind will see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the unclean become clean, and the poor are hearing the good news. And that is how John the Baptist knew, and now we know that Jesus is who he said he is. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has reversed the curse. When other rabbis touched something that was unclean, they then became ceremonially unclean. But when this rabbi, this teacher, Jesus Christ, when he touches the unclean, the direction is reversed, and the unclean become clean. They become new creations in Christ. There is no defilement in him. God has come to save those who, like Abraham, believe in God and have it counted to them as righteousness. Now let's let the prophet Isaiah speak to us again about Jesus the Christ from the 42nd chapter of his amazing book, Verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon 
From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son are working together in perfect harmony to gather people to themselves from every tribe and tongue and nation, not just Israel. But we have just a little bit more to this account. Verses 36 and 37. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Why did Jesus tell them not to tell others? Since Jesus is in the process of proving who he is, well, it's because the people want to make him into something that he's not. They have materialistic and political expectations about Jesus, but the time has not yet come for the full revelation. He is still training his disciples, and the gospel will soon be preached to all the nations, but the global expansion is waiting for something. The death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So the time is not yet right. Last week, Pastor Doug taught from Mark chapter 7, 1 through 23 about what defilement is. That is that defilement is not, it's not external things that create defilement. Defilement comes from within. It comes out of our hearts. Defilement or sin is a part of all of us because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans or Romans 1. There's no one good. No, not one. No one who seeks for God. No one who understands. They have all turned aside. They have together become worthless. How's your self-esteem? We generally don't see our hearts as God does. The scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jesus knows it. And in spite of that, he came to die for us. So what do we need to overcome this defilement that is common to all of us? We need a faith like the Syrophoenician woman, a faith that is humble, repentant, and persistent. That's how we are to approach God. James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66 tells us, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. God loves those with a humble spirit. That's one of the reasons that Jesus commended the Syrophoenician woman's faith. So we should imitate her attitude and her great faith. But even great faith will fail us if the object of our faith is wrong. We must place our faith in the one that God has chosen to be the Savior of the world. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. We need a Savior that doesn't have any defilement in him. We need a Savior who can touch our blind hearts and make them see who can touch our deaf ears and make them hear the word of God. And there's only one. His name is Jesus, the Holy One of God. In conclusion, if you want to know who God is, you want to know what love is, you want to know what it means to really be human, if you want to know what it means to be forgiven, then look at Jesus. And keep on looking until you're not just a spectator. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, let today be the day.
whatever's been holding you back, humble yourself. Admit your need and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, he will save you from your sin. God takes the penalty of sin and places it on the back of Jesus Christ who absorbed that penalty for us, penalty that you and I deserved. If you place your trust in him, God will credit his perfect righteousness to your account. You will be in Christ, a new creation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this place where the word of God is preached week after week. Thank you for this place where people gather to pray to lift up their requests to you and to offer praise to you for who you are and what you have done. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for its immediacy. Thank you that we are learning together who Jesus is and what he has done and what that means for us. Lord Jesus, help us to trust you more, to follow you more closely, to engage with you, not just observe to engage with you. Change us, Lord. Change our hearts so that we may know you more fully. Thank you in Jesus' name.